don't have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be on page 880 in the Pew Bible. If you weren't here with us last week, we uh, jumped back into our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I think this is our 80th study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been slowly working our way through this book since the middle of 2018. We're on the home stretch, though. We're going to finish on Easter this year. That's pretty exciting. Uh, and then, I don't know, maybe we'll pick a book that's not the Bible. Just, just kidding. I'm not going to do that. We'll do something else. That's equally cool. Um, so, when I, uh, when I was in school, I was homeschooled. And uh, most of my homeschool experience was really good. I was a good student, uh, except for sophomore chemistry. Um, sophomore chemistry was a level of math and science that my mom wasn't super comfortable with. And so she outsourced that to a video curriculum that was just the most boring thing I ever watched. And I hated it. And I suffered through chemistry for the entire year. But the problem was I was otherwise a really good student and I needed to get good grades. And I realized that I was going to get a bad grade in chemistry because I just, I hated it so much. And so the, the, the worst experience in my, my uh, schooling career took place that year because I decided that I would cheat on my final exam in order to get a good grade in chemistry. And the way this worked is I, is I had my final exam, I was taking it in my bedroom at my writing desk with my door shut. For some reason, my mom, my mom obviously trusted me and thought that that was fine. And I had the, the drawer of my writing desk just cracked open and I had hidden the answer key that I had swiped from my mom's desk when she wasn't looking uh, in, in the drawer. And I rational, I, I realized that, that if anybody came down the hall, I would hear their footsteps and I could just slowly close the door and no one would know that the answer key was hidden in my desk while I was taking my test. But that's not how it worked. For some reason, I did not hear my mother's footsteps coming down the hall and when she opened my bedroom door, I slammed my door shut and she goes, what, what's going on? I said, nothing. She did not believe me, and she came around, and she opened up my desk drawer, and she found the answer key to my chemistry exam, and I got in really big trouble. <laughs> I had to write a really long essay about why we don't lie and why we don't cheat, and it was, it was not a good time for me. <laughs> I ended up actually retaking chemistry as a senior so I could get an, an A legitimately. I didn't see her coming. And that's what this passage of Scripture is about. <laughs> you like that segue? <laughs> Last week, Jesus talked about, just started talking about the end. His disciples asked him two questions. They asked him, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Because he just started talking about the, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be torn apart, destroyed. Uh, every stone is going to be torn down. 
And then, when are you going to return? When is your coming going to be? The Greek word that's used there is the word parousia. It means a royal entrance from a leader or a king. When is that going to happen? Because the disciples, they figured if the temple's going to be destroyed, that's the biggest possible tragedy they could think of. And so, that must usher in the end of the world. And what I said last week is that Jesus, I think, is very clearly answering their two questions, and He's answering them in order. And so, last week, we talked about verses 1 through 35, and we said that he gives all of this information about the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know happened in the year 70, about 38 years after Jesus spoke these words. And he gives all of this instruction about how you're going to see this, and you're going to see this, and when this happens, you need to run away. But then in verse 36, he, he, he says something different. He changes the subject. He says, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven or the Son, except the Father alone. And I think there's four things we see in this verse that show that he's changing subject and he's beginning to answer their second question, which is, when are you going to return? The first thing he does is he says, now concerning. That phrase is used all over the New Testament to change the subject. Paul does it a lot in his letters. He'll be talking about something, and then he'll be like, and now concerning this, and he'll drastically start talking about something else. And the disciples, they asked two questions. They said, when is the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to return? And so, I think he's saying, now concerning, and he's changing the subject. And then he says, that day and hour. This is a different turn of phrase than he's been using thus far in Matthew 24. So far, he's been saying those days. He's been talking about when you see this happen in those days, and if those days aren't cut short, he's talking about a period of time that I think is leading up to the destruction of the temple, and now he starts talking about a specific day, a specific hour. Number three, in the first section of Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a bunch of signs he talks about false messiahs. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about armies and, and, and things that you're going to see. And then he starts off in verse 36 by saying, nobody knows when this next thing is going to happen. Nobody knows about the return of the Son. And then fourthly, He's going to speak directly about his coming, and he's going to use that word parousia, the, the royal unveiling of the king in this section. So, I think what Jesus is doing, and I talked about this last week, but Jesus is answering the first question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And he's giving all kinds of signs for his first century followers to be aware of and know that they need to leave Jerusalem when it looks like the Roman armies are going to come and destroy the city. And now, for the rest of this chapter today, and all through the rest of chapter 25 over the next several weeks, Jesus is going to talk about His return someday in the future. And I think a major idea that we need to hold on to here is that nobody knows when Jesus is going to return. That's what He says in this passage and what He's going to um, continue to say as we go on. And it's it's strange to me because there's a whole industry of Christian teachers that make their entire livelihood based on the fact that they do not believe this verse. They have an entire ministry based on looking for signs and, and, and seasons, and, and this is happening in the, in the Middle East, and this is happening in Europe, and these things are happening, and maybe this means that Jesus is going to return. And 
for many of those teachers, they're, they're faithful Christians that are just trying to figure things out and I think are a little misguided. But for many of those ministries, they're preying on people. They're, they're taking money from people. They're stoking fear. Jesus could be coming back any day because of the European Union and buy our freeze-dried food package. You know, there's all of this... Um, all these charlatans out there, and many times they're using prophecy and predictions of the return of Christ to prey on Christians. The disciples ask, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus says, there isn't one. Look at verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This will be the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Now, there's some disagreement in the church about what exactly Jesus is talking about here. Um, And if you're unfamiliar with all of the Christian infighting about the end of the world, it's a fascinating uh, little subculture. But um, some Christians would say that Jesus is talking about what's called the second coming, his return to uh, bring his kingdom to fruition. Others would say that he's talking about what's called the rapture of the church. And, and not all Christians believe in the rapture of the church, but for those that do, the rapture is that this time where Jesus is going to not return to earth and set up his kingdom, but come in the skies and take all of his followers away before a period of, of terrible destruction and tribulation that goes on for about seven years on the earth. And then he's going to return and set up his kingdom. So you can, you can see either one of those events in this passage. I think it makes more sense to think that Jesus is talking about the second coming here, um, but he could be talking about either scenario depending on where you land there. But the important thing about these verses is he talks about the flood, the flood of Noah. This is the early chapters of Genesis. The, the wickedness of humanity is spreading on the earth, and, and God is sorry that he made people. And so he decides he's going to flood the earth. He picks out a man named Noah who's not perfect by any means. He's not special. He's just a guy that follows the Lord. And he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat for your family and for all of the animals because I'm going to flood the world and destroy it and start over with your family. And Jesus says, what was it like in the days of Noah? It was business as usual. People were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. Nobody recognized that judgment was coming. Think about for a minute uh, the issue of climate change. I know we all have different ideas about that, so, but let's pretend for a minute that we all believe that it's happening and that it's man-made. And so every few years, scientists come out and they'll say something like, you know, the, the ice in the Arctic is melting at this rate and it's concerning us, or these species went extinct this year and we think it's because their habitat's going sideways and it, it's concerning us, and, and there's more hurricanes and we think it's this and CO2 and whatever. When California falls into the Pacific Ocean, nobody's going to be surprised because we've gotten warning after warning after warning that these things are happening and we can see it progressing year by year. But that's not what it was like during the flood. It wasn't like Noah said, hey, you guys, it's going to rain a lot and and you're all going to drown. And they were like, oh, really? That's not what happened. What they would have said is, what's rain? 
It's never rained before. They didn't get like an inch of rain one year. And then the next year, they were like, it was like six inches. And then the next year, it was like a foot. And they're thinking, you know, if this keeps up, we're all going to drown. They didn't have any precursor, any knowledge, any sign that destruction was coming. One day, it just started raining, and it was too late. And Jesus says, when I return, there will be no sign. It will just happen. The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling people about the flood, but they didn't believe him, and he he had no real evidence for it because there was no precursor, no coming sign. Look at verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know What day your Lord is coming. Now, if you see the rapture in those verses, the one that's taken is the faithful follower of Jesus that's pulled away from the earth before judgment. If you're seeing the second coming here, you're seeing the one taken being taken away to judgment and the one that's left being left in God's new world. Either way, both of these people are just doing everyday normal things. They're making food, they're harvesting grain. And they're totally unsuspecting, both of them, the one that's judged and the one that's saved, have no idea that today is the day that Jesus is going to return. Verse 43, but know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The middle of the Christmas season, who watched Home Alone this year? Yeah, okay. Why does Kevin McAllister booby trap his house to prepare for the coming of the wet bandits? Because he overhears them saying when they're going to come back to his house. He's prepared for them because he's warned in advance. If you go to sleep at night, if you you shut the lights out and lock the door and get a good eight hours rest, I guarantee you, you do not believe you're going to be robbed. If you you had a credible idea that you were going to be robbed tonight, you would not go to bed. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you know that something's going to happen, you prepare for it. And if you're not prepared for it, you don't really believe that it's coming. And then he tells a story. Jesus is going to tell several stories today and then into chapter 25. They're called parables is what the church word for them. And he says, who, in verse 45, then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. A couple things to notice here. The servant is part of the household. The the follower of Christ is part of the household of Christ, the family of God. There is never a situation or a scenario in which we are not part of the Christian community. And I, I know this 
we talk about a lot having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we, we should and, and we do, but that personal relationship comes with being adopted into the family. And there's, there's just no room for, in, in Scripture for a, a Christian who is not connected to the people of God. And, and whether that's this Christian community, Revelation Church, or whether it's another uh, outpost of the kingdom of God, another expression of God's kingdom at a different church in this city or many cities around the country or around the world, we are all part of the household. And just like this faithful and wise servant, we have a job to do. If you've been uh, accepted into the family of God by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been given a job. You've been given talents, abilities, and you're expected to do your part. And for some of us, we need to seriously sit down and figure out what that job is. It looks different for everybody, but we need to find out what we're called to do and we need to start doing it. I'm reading a book about art uh, by um, Meiko Fujimura, who is a, a painter. And uh, he tells a story about how he's got, he's got chickens at his house, and he gets fresh eggs for the very first time, and he's, he's super excited he's going to make an omelet. And so he looks up a YouTube video by, like, the greatest French chef that he can think of making an omelet. And he, f- he finds this recipe, and uh, he, he tries to follow the recipe as best as he can, but the omelet just doesn't seem to come out the way it does in the video. And he writes this, he says, no matter how high the ideal or how great the preaching, the true test of the power of the gospel to affect our lives is in the bottom line of what we have created into the world through love. The first question that should be asked as people walk into our church buildings is, what did you make this week? Instead, we have many recipes for theology in churches, and we tend to argue over whose recipe is best. We need to judge on the basis of the fruit of making, and let that be the pathway to God. Now, if you don't tend to have an artistic bent, you might think that's a little squishy, which is fine. But what he's saying is, we like to think that our faith is primarily based around a set of ideas. We believe some things about God, and that makes us a Christian. Now, there is definitely some things that we need to believe. There is definitely things that we need to affirm if we're going to call ourselves Christian. And that's one of the reasons we read scriptures. What does it mean to believe in Christ? But what Fujimura is saying is we spend all our time arguing about these recipes, and we never actually make anything. And we are being called by God through the power of His love inside of us to actually go out and do something in the world, to make something in the world. Now, he's specifically talking to artists in this book, musicians and painters and sculptors and um, architects. But whether, whether or not you feel like you have artistic gifts, you have a responsibility and a privilege given to you by God to go out into the world and make something, to create something good and beautiful out of the resources that God has given you. That's what the kingdom of God spreading around the world through His people looks like. And this servant left by his master is faithful and wise because he is doing what he is supposed to do. He is providing food for the household. 
But then he contrasts that with a different servant. Verse 48, but if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day that he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. So Jesus says there is this wicked servant and what the wicked servant starts to do is he doesn't start to just beat the other servants and drink too much. He starts believing that the master is delayed. His first, uh, the, the first thing that gets him off the path is laziness and apathy. Jesus isn't coming back today, so it doesn't matter how I live my life. Pastor Josh White writes, if we don't keep the master's will written over our hearts and minds, if we don't say each and every day, not my will be done, but thy will be done, inevitably we will begin to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong and what we should do and shouldn't do with our time and our energy. If my life is primarily oriented around my needs, my desires, and my preferences, instead of the needs, desires, and preferences of others, I am not believing in Jesus' soon return. Just like the man who stays up waiting for the thief because he actually believes something is going to happen tonight, Am I a person that lives my life in such a way that reflects the love and character of Jesus because he could show up any day now and catch me doing whatever I'm doing with my life? If Jesus expects me to be busy living out my life that is modeled on the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew 4, 5, or 5 6, and 7, I think he does... And I'm deliberately not doing that. I'm making a wager that Jesus isn't going to show up and catch me today. Now, setting aside the fact that God knows everything, God sees our hearts always, the warning of this story that Jesus is teaching is, is still there. How are we living our lives and are we living in such a way that we are ready for His soon return? 1 John 3, John writes, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. John says, do you have the hope that Jesus is going to return soon? If that's true, then we should be actively pursuing Christ-likeness. We are purifying ourselves just as Jesus is pure. We are working not to earn our salvation. We've already been saved. We've already been given the gift of adoption in the family of God, but we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, to do good works appointed for us before time began. Matthew 22, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. These are 
These are the, the, the pinnacle of God's will for us. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. We have finally come out of 2020, right? It's 2021. It's a brand new year. I talked with several of you this morning, and nobody wants to say it's going to be a good year because that might jinx it. But we can all agree that 2020 was terrible. Like, everybody believes that 2020 was terrible. But I wonder, like, was it terrible? I mean, for some of us, it was objectively terrible. A lot of people died this year that otherwise wouldn't have. But for those of us that had a pretty reasonable year, did we see all the opportunities that were given to us to be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus by pursuing Christ more deeply and laying down our lives for others? Or did we just complain about all the privileges that were taken away from us this year? My friend Mike, who's a, a pastor in town, was telling me that his, his dad got COVID a, a couple months ago. And his dad's older and has some comorbidities, and he ended up in the ICU. And for a while, nobody was really sure if he was going to make it. He's out of the hospital and uh, doing better, but there's probably going to be considerable lung damage that's not going to go away because of it. But the thing that Mike was telling me that he was encouraging his dad with is, you know what? As a pastor, I'm not allowed in the ICU right now. I'm not allowed anywhere near those people. And you, by the grace of God, through this suffering that he has decided to allow in your life, you get to go into the ICU and show the doctors and the nurses and the other patients what it looks like to follow Jesus gladly in the midst of suffering. And I thought, I keep thinking about that. What a crazy thing to think about. All of this suffering, the possibility of death, and wow, you get an opportunity to go somewhere that none of us can and share the love of God. Do we, do we think that way? Did we see 2020 as a gift? I'm afraid, by and large, we didn't. We complained and... in many cases around the country, showed the world that we were not trusting in Christ, not hopeful in the goodness of the gospel. If we are busy about his business, Jesus says that's, that's what it looks like to show that you believe that I could return at any moment. And oftentimes I feel like we've forgotten that he is coming back at all. Jesus finishes this story and he's, he's gonna finish all of these stories this way. Verse 51, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of these parables end with a statement about terrible judgment. Because Jesus is not messing around. We often like to portray Jesus as always nice, 
and always just gentle and always saying polite things. And Jesus is good and Jesus is love and Jesus is the most amazing person in the world. But he's not messing around. He will make his kingdom whole again. He will eliminate all of the wicked things in it. And at this point in history, the gift of God for us, for all of us, is that Jesus is offering to eliminate the wickedness inside of me through his cross and by his spirit. But one day, God's going to stop making that offer. And all of those that have refused it, they will be destroyed because there will be no room for wickedness and rebellion in the kingdom. And so that begs the question, why is Jesus telling this to his disciples? We said at the beginning that he, his disciples took him aside. This isn't the crowds that he's talking to. He's talking to the people that trust him and follow him and love him, his servants. Why is he telling us this? Because some of us, we might be deceiving ourselves. Some of us today may have uh, grown up in a situation where it just made sense to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, whether that's a family situation or a church or a school situation. And we haven't really committed our hearts to Christ. And the grace of God today is the warning don't deceive yourself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? That's a little, sounds a little flippant, Paul, but Jesus Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit of Jesus lives inside you if you are a Christian this morning. Unless you're not, Paul says. Unless he doesn't. Unless you've just been deceiving yourself and others. So Jesus offers this stern warning, and he's going to continue to offer these warnings that I am coming soon, and you do not know when it is. Make sure you are mine. Make sure that you have sworn your allegiance to the coming king. Make sure that by faith you have accepted the gift of salvation bought with my blood. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Before we close, I want to step back a little bit. This, Jesus is talking about his return. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. And we've, we've had almost 2,000 years to, of church history. And some people think that's a problem, but, but think, of, think of the mercy there. Think of all of the people that have been added to the kingdom of God because Jesus has waited The coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ is this hallmark moment. It's the beginning of a new world that Christians have been called to wait for, to expect. It's a big deal. And part of that big deal is waiting. God wants us to wait. Jesus wants us to learn how to wait well to be servants that are doing their job. 
And if that's true for one of the greatest events in Scripture, the second coming of Christ, how much more is that true in our individual lives? Maybe you, you're single and you just you want to get married and you, you're just not sure that's ever going to happen. Maybe you're in school and you just can't wait to get out of it. Maybe work is weird and, and uncertain and what's going to happen and I don't know. Maybe your health took a turn this year and there's uncertainty and questions. Whatever it is, I think all of us have a scenario where like, I'm waiting for this and the outcome that I want hasn't happened yet and I don't know what's going to happen. And we hate that. Everybody hates that. But this is exactly where Jesus wants us to be. Pete Grieg in his book on prayer writes, it's impossible to grow in faith without growing in faithfulness. And it's impossible to grow in faithfulness if all your prayers are answered right away. I really like that quote. If God just instantly gives us the things that we're hoping for, even if they're the good things that He promises us, we have no opportunity to grow. We have no opportunity to trust Him. And He wants us to grow. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to be faithful servants in His absence so that when He returns, He can give us more, greater things, bigger things, more exciting things. In the passage, the servant gets put in charge of all the master's possessions. And so, if you're in a season of waiting, if you're in a season of not knowing the answers, of not having clarity, of wondering what to do or where to go or when is this going to end or how is it going to turn out, know that that's exactly where God wants you to be because you have an opportunity to lean into the character of Christ, to trust who Jesus is, to give yourself away for the benefit of others and become more fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to continue in chapter 25 as we continue next week, telling stories about what it's going to be like when He returns. And they're all incredibly powerful, and I'm excited to get to them. But today, today we're going to take communion, and we, we celebrate communion, this meal that Jesus institutes on the night before He's betrayed to be crucified, he breaks the bread with his disciples and passes it around and says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup of wine and he passes it around and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man that Jesus is going to take our place. Jesus is going to fix the brokenness and sin and death in our lives. Jesus is going to make us new. This is what this represents. But there's another thing that he says at this meal. He says, I'm not going to have this meal with you again until I come in my kingdom. And so built into the communion service is this idea that we are acting out something that we are actually waiting for when Jesus returns. We are waiting for what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, an opportunity when Jesus returns for all of His people to share a meal together. And we are practicing that week by week as we take communion. Pastor Garrett Kell wrote this on Twitter this week. He says, 
The return of Jesus is spoken of in the New Testament more than 300 times. In 23 of 27 books, in seven out of every 10 chapters, in one out of every 25 verses, God wants us to continually ponder on and prepare for Jesus' return. And so my encouragement to all of us today as we sing and as we take communion is to ponder Jesus' return. Jesus could show up before this service is over. Jesus could inaugurate himself as king before the new president does. Jesus could be here any moment. Are we going to be people that are busy about his business when he gets here or not? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.